the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back Wednesday, January 12th, 2022, as we head into our second hour to the light. We do this every Wednesday with the congressman soon to be representing the district we broadcast from, or at least the geography we broadcast from. He represents currently the 6th Congressional District of Arizona, soon to be the 1st. That is an improvement for me, I will tell you that. Representative David (laughs) Schweiker, how are you, sir? Oh, you are very kind. Actually, you live in a great neighborhood. We won't tell everyone where you live. Yeah, we're going to do something for you. I've been talking to some folks who want to do something with me to do something for you. So uh, we're going to introduce you to our neighborhood. Uh, I have family, and and it's also the family thinks I'm from the black sheep side. Yeah, um, who live over there, so it, it's going to be fun. Oh, good, 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 good. Um, David, the economic news today, and I want to talk about some things going on in Washington too in a second. But the economic well, and- news today is uh, inflation up levels we haven't seen since 1982. What are we doing right? What are we doing wrong about this? Um, well, we've done lots of things wrong. Um, Okay, basic definition of inflation for everyone. You remember your elementary school economics class. Too many dollars chasing too few goods or services. Right. Um, And now you add on all the craziness that has happened, some COVID-related, some purely Democrat policy that has created shortages. But uh, just because you're you're, uh, interested in the economics, for a moment – for everyone listening, you've heard the fight over what is supply side. Yep. Well, that's a right-wing philosophy <laughs> and Keynesian economics. You're now observing what Keynesian economics are. And the concept is put out lots of money, and that will create demand. Um, the conservative view is you create supply. You incentivize production. And therefore, you crash the price, but because the price goes down, you create demand. Mm -hmm. That's why tax reform that we did at the very end of 2017, that was a supply-side approach. Mm -hmm. You make businesses and labor much more productive because you give them incentives to invest in equipment. And all of a sudden, inflation goes down, but wages go way up because everything in society gets more productive. The Democrat version, one of the reasons it's very political, uh, it's great politics to be handing people checks. But it also inevitably happens what's happening right now, where inflation is now going up for 2021. Inflation went up faster than people's wages. So America got poorer. The working class got poorer last year under Democrat economics. And things got disoriented a bit, right? I mean, more than a bit. There was an article, I think it was the Wall Street Journal yesterday. You may or may not have seen it. You'll know the issue. Um, Something along the lines of uh, clients, customers are there, hotel staff are not. Um, You're seeing this with restaurants, all kinds of businesses, aren't you, where there's a problem, there's a shortage 
for the supply of that which consumers are now demanding after we've gone through, what, two years of shutdowns and so forth. I mean, that's part of the problem, too, isn't it? We don't have the workers. There's a combination in that, and one of the things we've been looking at is, okay, um, just before the pandemic, we had the miracle of getting down to functionally a 3.5% unemployment rate, but it's more than that. The top line, when you hear politicians and economists quoting that, they're not telling you the important numbers. There's numbers under, underneath that of how many, how much available workers are still on the sideline. Mm-hmm. We call it the U6 numbers and those. Yep. And what was such a miracle a couple of years ago is people who, the statisticians said, we're never coming back to work. We're coming back into the labor force. People who were retired were coming back because wages were going up. There was demand. Today, we're missing Four million workers who disappeared. So you get down to you know uh, a, a three, six, three, seven, depending on uh, unemployment rate. But that's a number because you've taken millions of people and they've just disappeared out of the labor force. And part of that is what happens when you send people checks and say there's no attachment to this money to improve your skills. Free money, we could call it in a sense. Free money, helicopter money. Come back into, and we're suffering that. Mm -hmm. And now we're actually seeing some real sort of dystopian numbers, and I don't want to geek out and bore everyone that's listening, but we were looking at a data set early this morning of um, uh, women in in the workforce who are just retiring early. Mm -hmm. They functionally said, screw this, I'm out of here. And um, we're concerned because a lot of those who are just taking the early retirement, don't actually have the economic wherewithal to really live well through retirement. So, so there's some concerns here. Of we've the Democrats have so screwed up this this part of the labor part of the economy. Are we in future years going to have to deal with levels of poverty right. in these populations right. that left the economy early? Right. By the way, on that issue of poverty and looking towards the future, given what we've done with adults over the last two years, I'm concerned about poverty for the future, given what, given what we've done to children over the last two years as well. Um, there's a very powerful argument. Well, the math basically says my daughter, who is six, when she hits her prime income years, tax rates will have to double. Mm-hmm just to maintain basic services. Right. Um, look, last week you and I talked about our interest rate calculations, yep. Yep. that if interest rates go up 2% higher than the Congressional Budget Office has projected on U.S. debt in 25, 28 years or so, every dime of U.S. tax collections goes just to pay the interest. And this is one of the things that makes me intensely frustrated, almost bordering on angry, because I will get in front of audiences and say, what's the thing that will take down our republic? Mm-hmm. And it's the debt. Mm-hmm. It's the spending at levels where there's no way we can continue to finance it. There's no way we're going to keep our promises. And I'll get cheers back saying, no, I want to talk about having to wear a mask. I won't. Those things are important. But it doesn't take down your republic. And it's, it's almost like the political class is comfortable having us fight over all the other noisy stuff because the big issue is really hard and you're going to make a lot of very powerful people angry when you start having to change 
um, spending and make the economy much more competitive and those things, it's easier to chase the shiny objects than take on the thing that's actually the most dangerous to our society, to our government, to our way of life. Speaking of things dangerous to uh, society, dangerous to humanity, uh, of course, I, I didn't I mean, we actually never talk about what we're going to talk about, but <laughs> you're you're you're, well, you're, you're we, able we to do this. We should also talk about the voting bill. Well, so. we can do that, but, but I, I just wanted you to say a word. Take a minute and talk about. I've seen you at them before. I don't know if you're going to the Arizona uh, March uh, for Life uh, this this oh, absolutely. weekend. Absolutely, yeah. Fact, tell us a minute. That's, why, that's what got my family into. Politics. Yeah, t- spend a minute on the importance of that, if you don't mind. Why you will well, be there? Okay. Um, personal story, and many know, I was born in an unwed mother's home in downtown L.A. and was adopted by a family. Um, at a, a very young child, my father committed suicide, and I got adopted again and um, brought out to Arizona as a little tyke. Um, and my brother and sister both were born in unwed mother's homes, Um and my little girl's the third generation adopted. So, you know, um, Holy Family Adoption Agency, um, my, my parents were on the board and then eventually got very involved in right after Roe v. Wade of trying to tell the story of there's an alternative, that, that there's this loving families that can't have children. Um, you know, God knows I'm one of them. And so we got involved in the life movement as kids. The first political thing I ever did, I may have been 12 or 13, I was standing out holding a sign. Um, And and there was a time, you know, people forget, go back to the early 80s, you know, uh, half the Republican Party, a third of the Republican Party was pro-choice. Yeah, not there, right, yeah. But about about a third of the Democrat Party was pro-life. Yep. None of that's true today. I right. think there's like a half a pro-life Democrat left in all of Congress. Yeah. Um, but there's amazingly good things happening. I mean, you could go on Amazon right now and buy a handheld ultrasound that's amazing. I think they even have a color one, and it, it lights up your phone. It's handheld. It goes in your pocket. It's a couple thousand dollars. But the ability to understand this discussion of what is life and I have the amazing experience of, in my 30s, I get an email. It shows up, and it's from someone I don't know saying, hey, here's the contact information for your birth mom. Mm. And I met my birth mom and later my birth father, and it's been amazingly wonderful. And both my brother and sister have met their birth families and had – there's just this love and joy Um and every night before we lay our heads on our pillows, we say a prayer thankful um, to my daughter's birth mom. Mm. You know, thank you for giving us the chance to be a parent. So I, I wish we would talk about the issue of life in the fashion of it can be joyful, it can be loving. And in, in my case, um, you know, the, there's an amazing addition to the story, but... Maybe we'll do that one at another time. I'd love to, uh, actually. I would love to, I, you know, because there's there seems to be a dearth of of uh, outlets willing to air that kind of thing, air that kind of story, air that kind of talk and thinking. And uh, I don't want that ever to be this show. Um, David, you, you, you have us all very emotional about this, which is right. Let me let me close by saying this. 
uh, bless your birth mother, bless your adopted mothers for giving you us, and bless well, your we daughter's always say birth, birth mother. Birth mother and yeah. mother. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Birth mother. Yeah, and the mother. one the one that changes the diapers gets the. You know, um, I'm I'm on, I'm on board. I'm on board. Bless your birth mother and mother, and the same for your daughters for giving us you all. Bless you all. Oh. Truly. Thank you, sir. And thank you, and, and just I'll talk to you next week. You bet you will. It's okay. We can bless my mother, too. She's good. All right. <laughs> all right. David Bye. Schweikert, Godspeed to you. We'll see you Saturday. I'm Seth Liebson. We will be right back. I want to uh, thank uh, my friend Debbie. She knows who she is for uh, reminding me about the Arizona for Life uh, March and Rally, January 15th. Uh, For those that um, want more information on it, uh, they can go to azliferally2022.org. azliferally2022.org. It will... um, it, it, it there's a number of sites you can go to to get the information on it, but it's uh, this obviously uh, this January fifteenth, ten thirty to two, and um, and uh, I'm happy to give that website out again. I, I I was just thinking a little bit about how we often hear discuss revisions about the parties, particularly revisions that come from the Democrats or Democratic Party talking points or the corporate media. Uh, one of them isn't just what Joe Biden did yesterday with regard to the Bull Connors and the Jefferson Davises and trying to make that a Republican Party problem. It was a Democratic Party problem, and it is still it is still a Democratic Party problem. If you missed my monologue, you can get it at 960thepatriot.com. In sum and substance, if you want the, uh, the uh, view of the founding and of the Constitution – that it was a racist document uh, meant to extend and expand slavery um, in America. You get that view from uh, the left and the Democratic Party today, just as you got it from Bull Connor, just as you got it from the Confederacy, just as you got it from all the names Joe Biden tried to say were Republican names. Nope, they're Democrats and they are left wingers and they are comfortably within the BLM 1619 project. That's the same reading of history and our founding that the Confederacy has. It's the same reading and founding of our history that the uh, 1619ers have. Another distortion about the Republican Party today that uh, David Schweikert's uh, comments in the March for Life coming up on January 15th put me in mind of, uh, the invocations you often hear about uh, heroes of ours, like let's say Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, um, the encomiums and uh, the obituaries to him when he died were beautiful uh, and deservedly so. When he was alive, when he was running for office, those same outlets called him the same things they call Donald Trump, the same things they call you today. Bigots, racists, fascists, you name it. Nothing has changed and it's not new. The other thing you will often hear, more so from people who claim to be moderate Republicans than not, which is, you know, people like Ronald Reagan just, you know, they didn't deal with the social issues. They didn't they didn't focus on social issues. They didn't deal with the issues that tend to um, that tend to make people sweat just a little bit like issues of abortion and life. And it's a fundamental fraud and lie. It's just not true. I can't tell you how many broadcasts Ronald Reagan dedicated to it in the 70s, but how many of you know this? How many of you know that, to the best of my knowledge, correct me if I'm wrong, 
There's only one president of the United States in history who, as a sitting president, wrote a book. That president was Ronald Reagan. That book, published in 1983, was called Abortion and the Conscience of a Nation. That was Ronald Reagan, big old moderate, kind, gentle, non-controversial Ronald Reagan. You want the last uh, paragraph of that book? I can give it to you. Here it is. Abraham Lincoln recognized that we could not survive as a free land when some men could decide that others were not fit to be free and should therefore be slaves. Likewise, we cannot survive as a free nation when some men decide that others are not fit to live and should be abandoned to abortion or infanticide. My administration is dedicated to the preservation of America as a free land, and there is no cause more important for preserving that freedom than affirming the transcendent right to life of all human beings, the right without which no other rights have any meaning. Now, if some people might be upset that Ronald Reagan is invoking issues having to do with slavery and tying them, colligating to issues having to do with unborn life or abortion. Uh, Careful. There's a whole set of people who believe that, and not all of them happen to be white. Alveda King, who is the niece of Martin Luther King Jr., she will be at the March for Life rally here in Arizona. So important does she think the ground in Arizona is that she will be doing the March for Life in Arizona. She will be a keynote speaker at the March for Life, Alveda King. And um, you could go to Jesse Jackson. He doesn't hold these views anymore. He wouldn't tell us why he refuses to tell us why. Mostly, I think it's so he could be in sync with his party rather than his conscience. But he wrote an article for the Human Life Review where he made the comparisons as well. He wrote, I believe that life is not private, but rather it is public and universal. If one accepts the position that life is private and therefore you have the right to do with it as you please, one must also accept the conclusion of that logic, which was the premise of slavery. Ronald Reagan in 1983 was writing nothing more than what Jesse Jackson had written in 1977 or what Abraham Lincoln had said a few more than 100 years before that. It's obviously an issue that should run deep through the conscience of this nation, at least those of you who think Ronald Reagan had something important to say about it, or perhaps, if not him, those who have been adopted, like David Schweikert, or those who simply don't think that killing the unborn is something a society can continue to go on and live with without consequence. All right. Speaking about things we can go on and not go on with without consequence, I want to talk to you about the constitutional constitutionality of mask and vaccine mandates with a national expert we are privileged to have joining us. Don't go away. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Um, first time guest here. I am so delighted to have her. I've been following her on Twitter. She is um, everything and everyone you want to follow if you are concerned about mask mandates, vaccine mandates, the law 
and the culture. She is Janine Eunice. You can follow her on Twitter at Lefty Lockdowns One, the number one at Lefty Lockdowns One. She's litigation counsel at the New Civil Liberties Alliance, which we also need because the ACLU gave up civil liberties an awfully long time ago. Janine Eunice, welcome to the Airwaves of Phoenix. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. I want to make sure I have your name right. With a name like Liebson, you kind of care. About what, am I pronouncing your name right, Janine Eunice? <laughs> you actually sure. are. Okay. You're one, of the, one of the rare people. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> you deserve it to, to, to be uh, pronounced right. I do this with every first-time uh, guest on this show. Um, tell the audience just a little bit about yourself, a little autobiography, and how you came to be doing what you're doing right now. Sure. Um, so I was a public defender in New York for about nine years, um, and I so I came at this from the left, as my Twitter handle would indicate. Um, however, when COVID hit, I was sort of shocked by the civil liberties violations that I saw going on. Um, I was very um, perturbed by the fact that others on the left didn't seem to see the problems with this approach. So I started becoming active in um, fighting against lockdowns and mask mandates. And I was, it was sort of very draining because I was doing my day job as a public defender and then yeah, doing this, just writing and other activism at night. Uh, so I ended up, I heard about this job at the New Civil Liberties Alliance um, and realized I could combine the two, which is how I ended up here. And it's actually going quite well. I sort of have managed to spend my days doing what I want to do. So. And you have been very active as litigation counsel for the um, New Civil Liberties Alliance. You've filed cases uh, all over the country and been engaged in lawsuits on them. The one right in front of us, I suppose we'll, it's possible we could hear about this any any day. You tell me. But uh, the one that a lot of us have been focused on uh, recently, we heard oral arguments in the Supreme Court on it last week, is the vaccine mandate on private employers, Right. That's right. I should also be clear that I have not actually filed any lawsuits in, uh, against that particular mandate. Our, our office filed an amicus brief, um, but uh, we haven't actually brought original litigation. Okay, fair enough. Uh, on that, yeah. what is your reading of the tea leaves on the Supreme Court? What is your take on the mandate itself? Well, on the mandate, okay, I, I would say that the it's quite unconstitutional. Um, and so... It, the mandate is premised on the OSHA statute, which was designed to um, keep workers safe. And it's sort of supposed to address workplace-specific hazards. So if you're a construction worker, you know, wearing a helmet, uh, at least uh, mandating that your employer provide you with a helmet, or making sure there's no asbestos in the office where you spend eight hours a day. It's not really supposed to be about, you know, forcing the employee to undergo a medical procedure for a virus that is sort of omnipresent everywhere. Um, so... In my opinion, if the court comes out the wrong way and upholds upholds this mandate, it's uh, it's going to be very problematic. It sort of allow the government and employers limitless intrusions into individual personal health decisions. Um, that said, I think the court, based on the arguments that happened on Friday, I think that the court will reach the right decision here. Um, the the it, six of the nine justices had some serious concerns about the constitutionality of the mandate. Is it possible we could hear about this as early as maybe tomorrow, or is that is that optimist, too optimistic? So word on the street is that it's going to be tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. They've, they've said they're going to issue decisions tomorrow, and for some reason that I'm not entirely sure of, a lot of uh, people that I trust think that it will be tomorrow. Okay, Possibly go- because of the, the, the uh, January 10th deadline, which has already passed. I gotcha. Okay. Okay. Um, the idea that 
OSHA, Occupational Safety and Health Administration, has certain powers over businesses people have been complaining about ever since the Nixon administration. Um, why is this a reach too far? What is the difference constitutionally or even philosophically or morally between safety in the workplace and making sure a workplace is safe from the spread of a virus? Right. Well, you know, it, the distinction is a little bit hard to um I mean, I sort of, I sort of talked about it earlier. It's about workplace-specific hazards. I think. Let me do this. I have uh, to, I, this is a short segment. We introduced ourselves to you. We we have a quick commercial break. Let me keep you through sure. the break and and have you pick up on that on the other side of the commercial break. Is that okay? We'll put you. Sure. We'll, yeah, yeah. That way we don't have to rush the answer because I know people want to hear the uh, full uh, force of your argument. Janine Eunice, litigation counsel for the New Civil Liberties. Alliance is our guest. You can uh, see more of their work and more about her at nclalegal.org. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Janine Yunus, litigation counsel at the New Civil Liberties Alliance, <coughs> excuse me, is our guest. We're talking about the decision over uh, employer mandates sitting in the Supreme Court right now. We'll talk about a few other things uh, with regard to uh, legality and constitutionality of COVID mitigation as well. Uh, but, um, Ms. Yunus, if you could, uh, when it comes to the use of the OSHA, Occupational Safety and Health Administration, to enforce these mandates of this, as the Biden administration has used it, uh, people think of OSHA as being a heavily regulatory arm of the federal government that does dictate a lot of uh, practices for private businesses. Why is this not within their purview? Why is stopping the spreading of a deadly virus not constitutionally or, for that matter, even uh, philosophically or physically a legitimate, uh, a legitimate use of their power? So a couple of reasons. Um, OSHA is really designed to sort of address workplace hazards that are specific to the workplace um, and presented by the sort of occupation that you uh, have. So as I, I think I mentioned earlier, um, if you're a construction worker, you're making sure you have a helmet, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. This is a virus that exists everywhere. You could get it anywhere. Um, you know, so it's not really, it's not specific to the workplace. Another issue, and this, um, this, came up at oral argument is that these vaccines don't appear to be very good at stopping transmission if they're effective at all uh, with the Omicron variant. And um, I think that's another reason, you know, even if even if we granted that OSHA permitted for workplace vaccine mandates, which I'm not conceding, I, I don't think it should be interpreted that way. One would at least hope that it's a vaccine that stops people from spreading it to each other. Right. Uh, when it becomes about, you know, and the government has tried to justify it in this case, in some of my cases and other cases by saying, well, the employer has the right to um, to require this for the individual's own health uh, to ensure that they're you know they're not absent from work for too long, et cetera. And I think once you get into that territory, it's really dangerous. So, can your employer tell you to maintain a certain BMI because right. um, you know then you're less likely to suffer a severe outcome from COVID um, or obesity so itself, which without COVID takes three hundred and fifty thousand exactly. lives a year. Yeah, right. Exactly. Or, or can your employer tell you not to drink? I mean, drinking isn't good for your health either. <laughs> but one would hope that we can't, you know. Could they just shut down <laughs> McDonald's, period? I mean, that's a question yeah. at this point, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's unfortunately the direction that we're heading. When it comes to 
what people understand about this, and I take it you're in, uh, you, you, you practice in a, a lot in New York. I assume you probably see a great, a great, a, a, a great many examples of this sort of thing. People really do have um, an absence of facts at their hands and in their heads when it comes to telling people what to do. What Sonia Sotomayor said, Justice Sotomayor said in open court, is actually quite frightening when you realize she may be making her decision on a series of facts that are palpably and demonstrably simply untrue, right? Doesn't that concern? Shouldn't that scare the hell out of us? Yeah, well, I mean, that's why I, that's why I'm so passionate about this because the, I mean, what and because I come from the left, I'm really familiar with what they're saying. But, you know, most of my family and friends, uh, well, at least prior to COVID, were um, left leaning, and they're really, I, I mean, they believe really crazy things, <laughs> and that's why you know, New York now and a lot of private schools they're putting children in N95s. Why are we putting in children in N95s, which are suffocating and painful, and even healthcare workers there intolerable for long periods of time? For disease that presents no risk to children, virtually no risk. What, what is the answer uh, to that? I, I'd love your philosophical take from the left. Why are they? Why are we? Why are we doing this to children? I would love oh, your thoughts God. on this, legal or or legal or philosophical. I would love to know what you think that what what that comes from. I don't know if there's a single answer. I think that one of the things that happened was uh, the left hated Trump so much that because he didn't appear to take it that seriously, take the virus that seriously, and he sort of mocked masks and didn't think we should lock down, the immediate reaction from the left was like, well, he's saying this, so it must be very serious, and it must be that we do everything that we can <laughs> to sure. mitigate the spread of COVID. And, I mean, it's, it's virtue signaling, in my opinion, but I think their minds got kind of warped by it, and then there's probably um, sunk, fat cost, sorry, sunk cost fallacy going on. I mean, so many people have now devoted two years of their lives and spent two years of their lives miserable trying to avoid COVID to admit now that maybe it's all a waste of time. I could understand. It's hard to climb down from the position in in many of these cases. Well, the kids part of it, the OSHA thing and the private employee thing is one thing. The kids thing is another. If I can just do a question, one more question on the workplace mandate. And then I want to ask you about the children's uh, the mandate for kids. You have a great piece up at Tablet Magazine on this uh, on the workplace thing. What if you are an employee in a corporation that mandates this and you have sincerely religious or other beliefs? Uh, perhaps you have your own medical reasons for not wanting this vaccine. Are you just left out to dry? Or you, or do you have to make the choice vaccine or work? Is that what you have to do? If it's held constitutional, well, if it's held constitutional. Yeah. So the religious exemptions, for the most part, so the federal mandates, to my knowledge, you know, require uh, some employers to allow for religious exemption. And religious exemptions are generally being granted from the mandates pretty liberally from, you know, based, I talk to a lot of people about this all the time. Um, and, you know, I'll, you know, talk to someone who's going to seek the exemption. They often get it. Medical exemptions, on the other hand, are. Uh, shockingly difficult. That's what I thought, too. I thought that was odd. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead with that. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah. No, I, I spoke to a young woman, actually, a really heartbreaking story, who almost died from the flu vaccine. Um, she was, you know, she had to be like, her lungs almost collapsed. And her employer would not grant her yeah. a medical exemption, even though her doctor wrote something saying she really should not get this vaccine. So now we have bureaucrats overriding, you know, someone's own doctor yeah. saying that this is not <laughs> in their interest. And contradicting. I mean, the the thing is, it's so very contradictory. Two, uh, sorry, three weeks ago, we read 
If you watched CNN, if you follow the CDC, we read that the J&J vaccine was no longer being recommended because they were finding a spike in deaths, uh, an, an odd uh, cardiopulmonary uh, disease that was coming from it, actually coming from it. But with these mandates, there's no distinction on that. It's a, it's a very self-inherently contradictory thing that we're getting from the federal government, which I guess is the problem with federal government mandates in the first place. Exactly. And I mean, another thing I'd note, actually, most of the cases or actually all of the cases our office has brought so far are uh, on behalf of people who have natural immunity. Okay. So, you know, we keep making the point again and again that they have immunity better than the Johnson and Johnson, which is like, I don't know, 60 percent effective at best at the right. beginning and right. then leans to basically three <laughs> percent. Right. right. <laughs> and if you have COVID now, as we speak, Think about what happens if you have to be forced to take a mandate a a month from now. I mean, you could have very severe consequences. Very severe. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I did want to just mention the COVID vaccine mandates for kids. Uh, You have a great piece on that at tabletmag.com, Tablet Magazine. Are COVID vaccine mandates for kids legal? Are they? Uh, No. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Right answer. Okay. (laughs) Well. It's, it's obviously it's going to be litigated. It hasn't really been litigated before. I mean, it's a disease that prevent, presents almost no risk to children. The vaccine hasn't been adequately tested on them. It's still only in emergency use authorization status for children. Um, unlike, you know, uh, lots of people try to justify this by saying, well, we require vaccines for kids all the time. Um, those are for diseases that present a risk for children. Vaccines have been tested for decades. Uh, the vaccine stops transmission. It's a totally different situation. Janine Yunus. Litigation Council NCLA. Thank you. Thank you so much. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. When we think about what we've put kids through, I've given you the statistics over the last uh, two years. The rise in admissions to uh, emergency uh, departments, um, the rise in use of of drugs, Uh, the uh, mental health consequences that our children are facing, suicide attempts uh, having uh, skyrocketed, particularly with young girls. Um, I could go on and on and on. I haven't even gotten to the education deficits, uh, which a lot of the education establishment just seems not to care about. The The teachers' unions just seem not to care about. The head of the teachers' union in Los Angeles says that the uh, education deficits, uh, the loss of learning is a myth. Um, I I, I received this uh, email. um, Unless the person calls, uh, I just assume keep his name private. I didn't ask for his uh, permission, so I won't use his name. But he said he wrote me and I'll just quote exactly from this email. Briefly to your point about the spike in suicide attempts during the lockdowns and such, My girlfriend's then 14-year-old daughter did such. At about midnight on Mother's Day, the police and fire department arrived at their house and banged on the door because the daughter had texted her friends. She had popped a bunch of prescription pills and was going to die. Thank God her friends had the wherewithal to do the right thing and notify their parents, and they called the authorities. Good lesson in that, by the way. Any parents listening or any non-parents or children listening Know that if you get that call, do something quick, 9-11 first. Thankfully, now the kids are back in school and activities, church activities are happening again and her daughter is better. But everything you've been saying is absolutely real and sadly true. 
If you wish to read or paraphrase any of this on air, please feel free. These anecdotes are important. I wish more people would share them. They are evidence of the truth, even if they are anecdotes. Yeah, you need to put a human face on these things. Um, the statistics alone, the world I operate in, don't do it. But when you call in with something that resonates to those statistics, uh, it matters a lot. So I want to thank um, the bravery of uh, that um, that uh, that gentleman who wrote that and sent it in and allowed me to read it. If you have stories, we'll read them too. The federal government doesn't get it, and too many in the state government simply don't get it. We should not be torturing children for the sake of protecting adults. No sane or civilized society does that that succeeds. We're on a big path of doing things that no sane or civilized society does that can succeed. We're on a big and fast path. We're not here to stand athwart history yelling stop. We're here to stand athwart contemporary moments yelling stop. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.